Welcome to Adverse Reactions. I'm David Faulkner. And I'm Anne Chappelle. I'm a toxicologist and a risk assessor. I'm also a toxicologist, and I was once on the cover of Mutation Research. Actually, it was just a photomicrograph. But you made it. I did. I did. And on this show, we explore the stories behind the science. This is where we talk to toxicology experts from around the country and around the globe that use the field of toxicology to advance public health and also to protect the environment. This episode of Adverse Reactions, all the talks that's fit to print or present or blog. With respect to peer reviewing, I mean, when you're asked, if you want to advance in your career, you best accept those invitations. You should be so lucky to get them. With our guest, Jeff Peters, Editor-in-Chief of Toxicological Sciences, the official journal of the Society of Toxicology. And that's my problem with preprints, is that the information is disseminated before it's peer-reviewed. And I don't care if you're trying to cover your tracks so that you're the first one to get that. That means not as much to me as it does to make sure that the information is correct. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Tell me about the Toxicological Sciences Journal. It's been around for a while. It's an official journal of the Society of Toxicology. I've always viewed it in high regard. Even when I was a postdoc, I still do. It's a very good journal. I think that the journal itself represents the society. So, you know, the articles in there should represent society members as well as other toxicologists throughout the world that want to publish their best research. And that's what we're looking for. Impactful science that's going to move the field of toxicology forward. I, I think that as it sits right now, it's clearly one of the best journals in the, in the field. And in my opinion, it is the best journal in the field. I'm slightly biased there. Of course, of course. Do you base that on your impact factor? Because impact factor can be tricky. Yeah. I'm not going to get into a huge discussion about impact factor. Impact factor is clearly important. It's something that we think about but I think it's a metric that's dynamic in nature and moving right now. I don't think it's going to be the end all for all journals, but I think it's important for us to be cognizant of what it is and cognizant of how it's derived. And that is going to influence us in what is published. What do you think the role is for journals in the future? Because things are definitely changing. The pace of the publishing industry is changing. You've got all these preprint servers and just the way that information is shared is, is changing rapidly because of the internet. If you think of journals the way I do, journals were never online back in the day. We had to go to the library. So now they're online and and or printed in some cases. When you ask in the future with data sharing, for example, where's that going? The answer is that we promote data sharing. We encourage it strongly, but we can't really require it at this point. I think once institutional places that fund science that may require this kind of thing, we might find sharing of data a little bit more. The NIH, National Institutes of Health, has come down with some guidelines about that. I think they're going to be implemented in the near future. And we're aware of those. They have not finalized those plans yet. I think that they're still kind of working through that. From you can have all my data to you can't, you're going to have to find somewhere in between. I think people need to be aware that there is an issue with that. And it really deals with reproducibility. And that's really the big issue. So that actually brings me to a tricky question of publishing negative results in the field of toxicology, knowing what some things don't do can be 
just as important in a lot of ways. It's hard to persuade a lot of publishers to say, you know, look, I looked at all these chemicals and they didn't do anything in this assay. How do we deal with that as a profession? Because I think that those are really important things. I totally agree. If you look at my CV, you'll find probably about 15 papers that are negative in nature, all fully negative in nature. And I think they're great papers. They've been cited a lot. That being said, I probably wouldn't publish them in Toxide. I mean, I'm not trying to say that, that a, a negative paper wouldn't get published or couldn't. It probably could, but it would have to be impactful. I mean, to say that you screen chemicals and say it didn't do something, that would be important if we were concerned about them doing something. So you have to take it into context. You can't just make a blanket policy and say, we will or will not publish negative data. I'm open-minded to anything as long as it's impactful. It seems like it's a balancing act to make sure that there's enough variety and interesting things going into the journal. What do you think about in terms of molecular versus more population level type things getting into industrial versus ecological. Is, is there any kind of consideration of these things as you're putting together an issue? So there was two questions, I think. One, the balancing act issue, and that is completely out of my control. It's what's submitted and it's what the editorial board and the, and the associate editors decide along with me. So we have no clue what's coming in in any given year, month, week, whatever. It's just what comes in. In terms of interests, our interests are diverse and we expanded the categories and the areas that were covered. We definitely include population issues. We're very interested in population sciences. We're interested in exposures. We're interested in molecular. We're, we're interested in everything. There's no specific region or category, I would say, that we're looking for per se. It just has to be something that's of interest. And quite frankly, the easiest way to capture that is writing a good cover letter or writing a really good abstract and including a really good impact statement that we require. That's your opening monologue. And a lot of people don't take the time to actually give us an impact statement and craft it the way they should. Something to think about, especially for junior investigators. That is a really good point because you're the only one that knows how important your research is. And it's hard to extrapolate that sometimes across different disciplines. The SOT and their strategic plan has an active program to try to have more translational research. And so how do we increase our impact and our interaction with clinical physicians. How do you help grow and make the journal more inclusive? We're trying to be open-minded in the sense that we want to be inclusive to the members to cover all categories that people are studying. So that's important to do that. But the translational component, I mean, that's tricky. I'm deputy director of a cancer institute, and obviously we want to take our basic findings into the clinic. That's a very important part. NCI measures that by the number of clinical trials we start. That's not what TOXI is about. I don't think I've ever even seen a clinical trial come into the journal in the entire time I've been as an ed editor-in-chief yet. I have seen papers that you might call translational in nature because they're looking at trying to translate findings into like regulatory issues or things like that. So that comes down the pipeline and that we're interested in, definitely. I, I was doing a talk last week. One of the questions that I got was, how do you improve your writing? The question was, how important is writing if I'm a scientist? I'm a scientist, why do I need to know how to write? And I said, oh, it's one of the most important things you can do as a scientist is be a good writer. Uh, and then the immediate follow-up was, how do I do that? <laughs> I'm curious if you have any advice for people who are trying to put together their first manuscript and they're not really sure what to do. Sure. I mean, the easiest thing to think about when you're new is just go back to when you're in lab and in college and think, how did you write up your lab report? Same way. You're just giving them an introduction, telling them why you're doing the study, giving them a rationale. Two of the biggest things that I see that are missing in a lot of things in, in Toxi are the dose 
and a lot of exposure. A lot of people do high dose toxicology that doesn't mean anything because you want real life exposures and, and people don't model that. And if you don't justify that in your introduction, it's not going to fare well for you. That's probably one of the most critical things. It's the dose that makes the poison. That's the mantra that you know we all say as toxicologists, yet when the paper is submitted, they don't focus on that. So advice for writers, practice, 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 write them up like lab reports to start it. Take your poster that you presented at SOT the, the one year, that's going to be your backbone for your paper and build on that. Work with your mentor on a regular basis, go and see him or her. I mean, my encouragement to my students and postdocs is to write as you work, to prepare the paper before you start, to write the introduction before you start the experiments, to understand what you're doing before you do it. And all those things will help you write better. Because when you get down and you're done and your data's there, you need to tell everybody else what it means. That takes practice. And conciseness is important. Most studies can be summed up in three to five paragraphs, and you don't need to write 10. That is a skill. How much of that is mentoring though, really? And say, you know, so maybe your lab doesn't have somebody who's pushing you to publish or recognize that. I mean, how do you find people to help you? So we've got training that's been coming on board for the editorial board as well as the associate editors, but we're trying to implement training eventually get down to the authors. Just like you're saying that we want to encourage and help. That being said, you're gonna have to do the good science and do the good writing that takes good mentoring. You have to get a good mentor. I mean, you really do. I, I got Frank Gonzalez. That guy turned me into a hammerhead. <laughs> I mean, he did. I mean, I left his lab. I could have picked any job I wanted because he trained me so well and I knew exactly what to do. And he was getting in invitations to get papers reviewed because he was getting invitations, couldn't accept them. I could review forums and that's how I got in the door that way. So coupled with the fact that I was, you know, multitasking 10 to 12 projects at a time, just working my tail off and that's how you get ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I am already reflecting on things that I've done in the past and thinking, I really wish I'd had some of this information back when I was a PhD student because I probably probably would have done stuff differently. I remember distinctly, I uh, was getting past a lot of papers to review from my PhD advisor. I got an invitation from a journal to do more peer review stuff and they would occasionally send me papers. And for a while I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. But then it got to the point where I was getting towards the end of my PhD and I was trying to write up my dissertation and I just didn't have time. And so I sent an email, I just can't do this for a while. And so then they took me off the peer review list and I never heard back from them. And now I'm thinking maybe there's another way I could have handled that. So if you wanted peer review for Toxi, do you email one of the editors? You, you could try that. What we do is we send out an email to the associate editors and ask them for suggestions. So yes, they can send emails. I do compile a list and look at them at the end of the year and, and it's a need-based thing. And I like hearing that you're working on some training for authors, but I also like the idea of the training for the associate editors and up to the deputy editors, because this is a great way to really contribute to the society, contribute to science overall, but it isn't always clear the path and the skill set that you need to be able to be a very effective editor, as well as it all depends on the journal too, because you see all different kinds of quality of journals and the way that they're run. It's almost to me like when they're looking for a new editor, it's like match.com, you know, that you have this little profile and swipe left or swipe right. Oh, there's no way I want this person as an editor. Yeah, you know, getting to be an editorial board, the whole thing is just kind of hard. It's something that people need to get themselves wrapped around. It kind of even starts with like when you talked about impact factor to begin with, because when you're young, you don't even realize what that means. You're publishing a paper in a journal, you're excited about it. You weren't thinking as much back then about what impact meant. 
But as you mature, I went to NCI and I learned real fast that this is what you do to get into a good journal. I mean, I was going into very high impact journals and I have paper that I published in Toxi because I thought it was super important. And I can tell you it is important because it's been cited a bunch. When I crafted that paper, it was because I knew it was, was designed for that because I had the training, but it took time to get there. So at the same time, when it comes to what it takes to be an editor or an editor on the editorial board to be an associate editor, it takes the training to understand, to be able to see through the weeds and pick up the paper and, and realize that this is a good paper or this is not, and this is why it is. And it's not because you know, you're finding that they did this method wrong or something like that. It's really because what they did, the approach or whatever was not, the dose wasn't justified. The route of exposure was incorrect or that's already been done 50 years ago. You know what I mean? You have to have a, a very diverse editorial board to depend on and rely on that know the fields. The training issue is something that's going to continue. I, that's my goal with the editorial board as well as the associate editors. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes to help them. They actually have tutorials available for them. So when they're in there doing their reviews, they can click links and get answers to questions about issues they have about peer review. It's really interesting to hear you talk about the training process for becoming an editor. And a part of that is just experiential. You just have to do the work. You have to put in the hours. Oh, yeah, definitely. You just don't do things unless they're thorough. One of my friends always tells me, and if he listens to this, he'll crack up because he always tells me, you know, the, the best scientists are the ones that run the most controls. Because every student, you tell them, you run a negative control, run a positive control. They don't want to do it. You know, they don't want to run the extra steps. But you say, listen, those are the ones that are going to tell you the right answer. Because if you don't have the positive and negative controls, with an S, you're not going to have good data. And that's the problem I find with most people. They don't plan ahead well enough. Yeah, especially with the race to publish, it's very tempting to just try to get to the exciting result that matches your hypothesis as quickly as possible. Actually, that's a good point. A term I do not like at all is when they say prove a hypothesis. You test hypotheses. You either reject or accept the null. I mean, that's it. Yeah, I've described science as the process of me trying to prove myself wrong over and over again. And if ever I fail to do that, then that's something worth writing up. <laughs> I constantly challenge everyone in my lab the same thing. So I've gotten that dreaded letter before from my county that says, you've been picked for jury duty. And I tend to look at that as the same as if you get a request to do a peer review. And I think that's the wrong approach. How do you think of people or how hard it is to find good peer reviewers and why people don't necessarily use that as an opportunity more often to improve their skills, to volunteer, in essence, for the society, to improve with respect to peer reviewing, I mean, when you're asked, if you want to advance in your career, you best accept those invitations. You should be so lucky to get them. Exactly. People don't understand that, but you should do it. And it, it is essential. If you had to give me off the top of your head, your top three pet peeves about being the editor of Toxi. Number one, impact statement. Number two, dose. Number three, route of exposure. That's it. I guess I'd go four and say a solid, rigorous approach. I am working on a manuscript right now. I will keep that in mind. Thinking about, again, changes in the publishing industry, what are your thoughts about open access and increasing accessibility? It's something that we talk about every year and have for probably 15, 20 years now, it seems like. Open access, it's got its pluses and minuses. If you go to open access, that means that you're gonna have to charge X amount of dollars which is gonna drive authors away, and then suddenly you're depleting your, your resources there. So it's a catch-22. With a third world country, you have good science coming in and they wanna publish it, and if they can't afford to pay it, that's not fair. You know, we have to provide opportunities for that. 
As long as we're talking about interesting and uncomfortable elements of the publishing world at this point, I was wondering about preprint servers and what do you think about the emerging role of preprint servers? I think we've definitely seen, especially with the pandemic and, and the way that preprint servers have played this outsized role in the way that people have gotten information and, and information has spread. We've definitely seen examples of where this model has been used to great effect, where excellent papers were able to get seen a little bit earlier. I don't have a very strong opinion. I would never put one on myself. I was always taught, you keep your data, you put it in your poster, you can share it with your colleagues until it's published, it's in our lab. Mm-hmm. I mean, now we're trying to be more transparent, so I'd be a little bit more open to that kind of a thing, but I wouldn't go to a preprint because it's not been peer-reviewed. And quite frankly, I've seen many preprints that are incorrect. It gets it out of the bag, and once somebody says it, it's harder to forget it. And that's my problem with preprints, is that the information is disseminated before it's peer-reviewed. And I don't care if you're trying to cover your tracks so that you're the first one to get that. That means not as much to me as it does to make sure that the information is correct. It does raise an interesting question, I think, which is the process of peer review and and publishing just takes time. When you have something, for example, like COVID-19 and you need to get information out soon, what is the balance of urgency and ensuring that everything goes to the proper channels? Because it seems like there's definitely a trade-off there. If you have a final product, say it's got seven, eight figures, multi-panel figures in there. If you send it to our journal and it's a good article and we look it over and send it out and it maybe comes back with revisions or whatever, you can get that thing published within a month and a half to two months. I mean, it would be online. So I don't see that as being slow. I actually see that as being pretty fast. So my last question, why on earth would you take this job on top of all of the other stuff that you've got going on in your life Because I like to do things like this. I like to take things and make them better. That's what I was trained to do. And so when I came into it, I wouldn't have done this job unless I thought I could do it and make the journal better. I think I can make it better. And that's what I'm doing. It's not an easy position. I didn't take it lightly. I can tell you that. Well, thank you so much for for taking the time to talk with us today. We really appreciate it. This has been a great conversation. You're welcome. And it was nice talking to you. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm glad today that we were able to talk with Jeff. Another interview in the books. Apparently, it's not all the toxicology that's fit to print, but also to podcast. And now, the teaser. Next time on Adverse Reactions. Breathe a little easier. And why the lungs are the sexiest organ. We speak with Alana Jaspers from the University of North Carolina. In terms of the air that we breathe in on a daily basis, how much of the external environment that's surrounding us actually comes into contact with the body is much more important in the lung than it is for the skin. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Adverse Reactions presented by the Society of Toxicology. And thank you to Dave Levy at Maestro Studios. That's Maestro with a three, not an E. Who created and produced all the music for Adverse Reactions, including the theme song, Decompose. The viewpoints and information presented in Adverse Reactions represent those of the participating individuals. Although the Society of Toxicology holds the copyright to this production, it has definitely not vetted or reviewed the information presented herein. Nor does presenting and distributing this podcast represent any proposal or endorsement of any position by the Society. You can find out more information about the show at Adverse Reactions Podcast. 
www.toxicologyinc.com. And more information about the Society of Toxicology on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm Anne Chappelle. And I'm David Faulkner. Hopefully at least half of you make it back for the next episode. This podcast was approved by Anne's mom.